This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Would you say it's time for our viewers to crack each other's heads open and feast on the goo inside? Yes, I would, Ken. Jonah Goldberg, Rob Long, we are getting together on Sunday, April 26th yes. at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific, for a live Zoom glop culture. That, that's amazing. It, it, the only way to, to watch this thing, I mean, assuming that you're the kind of person that needs to watch it, is that you've got to be a member of Ricochet, you've got to be a subscriber to Commentary, or a, a, a subscriber to The Dispatch. Jonah, tell them about The Dispatch. Uh, the Dispatch is this uh, new media company that Steve Hayes and I Great. started. Thanks and very much. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> but that's right. You have to be a member of good standing of the what the Germans call Der Dry Podcasters Bund. <laughs> one of one of these three fine institutions. Sunday, April twenty sixth, six PM Eastern, three Pacific. Members of Ricochet, subscribers to the Dispatcher Commentary Magazine, yeah. live glop culture. You know, I, I don't know how long this this uh, fun kind of inside time is going to last. It's not going to last forever, so you, you got to take 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 advantage of it now. It sure feels like this promo is going to last forever. <laughs> We'll do it live! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com uh, to find the uh, the secret of the universe and everything. And today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. More about them later. Uh, I'm very excited about today's podcast. This is probably peak trend for us in terms of getting people we've long wanted on this podcast but weren't able to until they were put under house arrest. Um <laughs> One of my, uh, truly, I, you know, I've had lots of authors on here, and very rarely have I said anything like this, truly one of my absolute favorite authors, um, a guy who uh, helped introduce me to all sorts of uh, new ways of thinking about a number of things, uh, Matt Ridley is here today. Matt is the author of seven books, including the upcoming How Innovation Works, which I've just started. 
Um, he was a Washington correspondent for The Economist. He was a science editor there. He's the American editor. Um, he founded the Mind and Matter column in the Wall Street Journal. He was a weekly columnist for The Telegraph and The Times. He is, which I think is one of the most awesome things we've had. We've had senators on here, but this is our first member of the House of Lords, <laughs> um, which is truly wild. And um, I understand that when he was a younger man, he cooked, he baked 12-minute brownies in seven minutes. So, uh, Matt Ridley, welcome to The Remnant. <laughs> Jonah, thank you so much for having me on this show. The uh, The admiration is mutual. I've, I've adored your writings uh, over the years, and it's just fantastic to meet you. We'll get you the best doctors, but thank you. <laughs> um, so... There are lots of places that we can we can start with, uh, but since you're an author and you're writing about stuff that I'm deeply interested in um, since I worked on my last book and since I've been sort of somewhat inculcated into the cult of Deirdre McCloskey, uh, your new book, How Innovation Works, starts really intriguingly. So even though it is not out yet, but I... As we say on this podcast all the time, this podcast moves books. Um, now is the time to pre-order. Uh, uh, why don't you sort of lay out what you're writing about in the book and why you decided to write about it? Yeah. Well, uh, in the end, all roads lead to innovation if you're trying to explain the modern world. Um, if you're trying to explain the bad things as well as the good, you, you, you need to come back to what's changed. And we have this extraordinary phenomenon called innovation that happens to us and not to rabbits or rocks and didn't happen to our ancestors until really quite recently in terms of regular innovation where it happens all the time. And uh, it's a mysterious phenomenon. There's a thousand books about it. There's a million books about it. But I would argue that none, nobody's quite cracked the problem of why it happens when and where it does, in which countries, in which industries, uh, in to, and, and who's involved in making the discoveries and, and applications that, that change the world. So uh, I, I've danced around this topic on a number of previous books, but I thought I would actually dive into uh, innovation itself and just tell stories. Just start by telling six or seven stories from six or seven different sectors of the world, uh, from transport and energy and public health and whatever else, and then draw the lessons from those about what it is that we need to do to make sure that innovation happens and is a beneficial process. Right. So why don't we just sort of start with, you know, uh, I don't want to say you were begging the question, but what actually is innovation? I mean, just sort of in the nuts and bolts of it. Well, it's making new things out of old things. What, but it, using your it's making new things out of old things, but it's doing so in a way that sticks, in a way that is affordable, uh, replicatable, uh, and uh, uh, sort of sustainable. So, in other words, it's not invention. I make a very important distinction between invention, coming up with a new idea or a new prototype of a gadget. Uh, and on the other hand, coming up with something that everybody buys, everybody needs, or not everybody, but lots of people. Um, so, uh, uh, th th you know, people like uh, um, Thomas Edison 
he wasn't really the original inventor of the light bulb or indeed many of the other things that he's famous for, but he was the innovator. He was the guy who put a team of people onto working out how to make a light bulb really reliable so that it lasted for thousands of hours before the filament burst out, burnt out so that it could be manufactured so that it could uh, not blow up the whole time, etc., cetera, et cetera. Uh, And um, so that's written. And of course he famously said, uh, I think he used the word invention, but let's just put, put innovation in there instead. Innovation is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. So what I'm focused on in this book is very much the people who take ideas and turn them into practical products that change the world. Um, because uh, I think we pay too much attention to the heroic guy who has the brainwave at the start of the process. And often it isn't the start. Often once you go back and look, you find that there are he's feeding off predecessors who are feeding off predecessors and so on. So it's a very gradual process by which the light goes on over someone's head. But nonetheless, what really matters is the hard work, the trial and error uh, that goes into turning uh, a new idea into something that actually changes the world, into you know an airplane that can fly or a, uh, or a car that can work. You know, the Wright brothers are beautiful examples of innovators. They it wasn't that much that they invented that was brand new, but they put it together and they tested it and tested it and tried and tried and tried inch by inch incrementally till they had something that could fly. Yeah, so one of the reasons why I like this is, um, well, first of all, it confirms a lot of my priors, which well, I always enjoy, but um, uh, is one of the one of the things we talk about a lot on, on here is the famous essay, at least in the States, I Pencil, which I'm sure you've Literally. run into at some point. And, you know, I, I make this point all the time about how no one knows how to make a pencil. No one knows how to make an iPhone. The people who get the credit for making these things, either in, in, in the way I usually tell it, know how to put together the last 1% of the process. And what I like about this is that this is sort of like an, an, an analog to that in that the same thing goes with the spark of the creative idea at the beginning of the mm -hmm. process, right? It's, it's right. no one, no one knows how to innovate a light bulb. They know how to take these different ideas and advance the, the thinking one click further along. And then they get a lot of credit for it, which is an interesting way to think about. Things. Yeah. I mean, if you take Moore's law, which is a, uh, a plot of the gradual improvement of computing power over time, it's fantastically gradual. It's very incremental. There are no jumps or leaps in it. And if you extrapolate it back to previous technologies, to electromechanical relays and things like that, um, and in terms of plotting the cost per quantity of computing that you're able to achieve, again, there's no step changes. It's really weird. It's far more gradual than we think. We, we think in terms of these breakthrough revolutions where we disrupt the world and everything changes overnight. And it just doesn't look like that the more you look at it. You know, the, the first motor cars look like a, uh, you know, a horse carriage uh, met a steam engine around the back of a bicycle shed and had illicit relations. Um, 20 years later, cars look completely different. But but it, yeah. it has to get there gradually. It doesn't get there in one jump. So there's an interesting other analog to this, which is I, I've had this theory for a very long time that um, books that are often given credit for launching a new mode of thinking or a new political movement tend to be lagging indicators rather than leading indicators. And if you look at... Um, Charles 
Charles Reich wrote this book, The Greening of America, which supposedly gave birth to the youth movement in America in the 1960s. And it came very late in the process. Herbert Crowley's Promise of American mm -hmm. Life, which supposedly gave birth to the progressive movement in America. These were, I'm not, whatever the merits of the books, and The Greening of America is a terrible book, but um, the, the interesting thing to me is that what was really going on was that there was this nascent, inchoate movement on the ground that needed a totem to galvanize their thinking around. And so the book, these books sometimes, I think you could probably make the case about a lot of Marx, that there was, this stuff was in the water and it needed some sort of totem or focal point to say, aha, this is what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I, I would bet if you went through and looked at the great philosophers and the great sort of social commentators of the last 2000 years, a very similar process to what you're talking about is going on is that these people took these things that were out in the air and advanced them just slightly enough to make them seem like a huge innovation. And they were recognized as such because people already agreed on them a lot to a large Yeah. Extent. And that, that, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that, that is illustrated very nicely by the phenomenon of simultaneous invention, which people like Kevin Kelly have mm -hmm. written about very interestingly in his book, what technology wants. Um, uh, 21 different people came up with the idea of the light bulb, the incandescent light bulb, independently <laughs> around the same time as Edison. I mean, uh, as far as one can make out, there's no communication. There's a guy called Lodigin in Russia. There's a guy called Swan in Britain. There's, there's Hiram Maxim. There's uh, somebody in France, somebody in Belgium, etc. Now, what's that telling you? It's telling you that the technology is ripe. It's ready to fall from the tree. Something about the combination of glass blowing, vacuum pumps, uh, electricity systems, uh, and the use of arc lighting has come together in a way that Thomas Edison is run over by a tram. It doesn't make any difference. We still get light bulbs in the 1870s. Or if you bring it more up to date and you tell the same story about search engines in the 1990s, um, there are hundreds of search engines in the early 1990s. Google is just one of them. Um, if Larry Page never meets, never meets Sergey Brin, it's not a different world with no search engines. It's a world in which the search engine is not called Google, but that's <laughs> that's a different point. And then the beauty of this uh, way of looking at the world, I think, is that if you go back five or 10 years before that point and say, well, wasn't it obvious then looking forward that search engines were going to be the, the way to make money out of the internet? Nobody saw that coming. In fact, Larry Page and Sergey Brin didn't see that coming. They didn't even think they were inventing a search engine. They thought they were cataloging the internet. So um, uh, there's something tremendously asymmetrical about innovation. It looks fantastically obvious and inevitable when you look backwards, but it looks completely uh, unpredictable when you look forwards. Um, uh, and I find that rather rather fascinating. I grapple with that. I don't fully solve that issue in my book, but I tell enough stories about it for readers to make up their own minds. Yeah, so uh, I have two separate questions. I'm trying to figure out how I could not make them forks in the road. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things I've always been, that I harp on a lot is this point that I first got from Deirdre McCloskey, though I think it's in Rational Optimist as well. Well, I probably got that, it from Deirdre too, so. Yeah, no, there's a lot of cross-pollination in all of this, but uh, the this point that innovation up until really recently in human history was essentially uh, taboo. 
you know, or a sin, depending on how you define these things and what culture you're in. But there was something about uh, the whether you would call it the coalition instinct or the powers that be or the or, or guild economics that saw um, any questioning of the status quo um, as a threat. And so you have the you know the the Chinese calling on the ships and getting rid of steel production and not doing anything with the printing press. You have in Western Europe, the sin of curitas, questioning the established order and all of that. And then it busts through in the late, you know, the 1600s and 1700s. Um, what is your personal explanation um, for why it took that long for society to recognize innovation as a positive thing rather than a negative thing? Um, I want to come back to that question in just two seconds because I've I've got a tangent I want to slip away on. Uh, brief, we like briefly. Um, you're 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 saying you can't remember where you got a certain idea from. Uh, reminds me of a very nice story um, that happened to me. Um, there's a very good book called Second Nature by a, a professor called Heim Ofek, um, who I never met. Um, uh, but I read the book and thought it was great. And it had one idea in it that I thought was startlingly good. It was basically that the whole of human history, we've been moving towards um, uh, uh, diversifying our consumption, but narrowing our production. That's kind of the big theme of human history, as it were. You get more and more specialized in what you produce so that you can be more and more diversified in what you consume. And I wrote to him and said, this is a superb idea. You know, where did you get it from, etc." And he wrote back and he said, I got it from reading your book. <laughs> my, my book, The Origins of Virtue. And I said, but it's not in that book. And he said, well, I thought it was, you know, so, <laughs> and I think that's, that's quite a nice example. Uh, and of course, you could, you could play that either way. You could end up with me suing him or him suing me um, for, you know, <laughs> breaching the patent or the copyright or something on it, which is not the way we played it. We were both delighted that between us, somehow, we'd come up with this idea. We'd probably stolen it from Deirdre McCloskey or Jonah Goldberg or someone. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, not, probably not for me. But, but anyway, uh, let me let no, me go back to the point about uh, resistance to innovation because I think I think you're sure. absolutely right. Well, you're right and you're not right because I think there's still a huge amount of resistance to innovation. In fact, I end the book a little bit pessimistically, saying that it's getting worse. That we're we're experiencing an innovation famine at the moment compared with what we could be experiencing. Uh, and just to illustrate that, look at how unadvanced vaccine creation is turns out to be a process that takes five or ten years just like it did when um two rather brilliant women who i talk about in the book developed the whooping cough vaccine in the 1930s um you know who knew i didn't know that that we had made so little strides forward in accelerating the way we could create, create vaccines i now know and i and we've been playing russian roulette with with viruses it turns out um all this time so uh, so there's an awful, you know, the, the, the world's problem is that we haven't got enough innovation. And if you look at what's happening around the world, you see big corporations that are getting more and more sort of powerful in keeping incumbents out of their industries. You see uh, more and more governments passing regulations to satisfy people who uh, are a little bit frightened of change. You see more and more protest movements against innovation. Uh, we're living in an age which is pretty anti-innovation, I would argue. Now, is it as bad as the period before the industrial revolution probably not uh, because for for all the protests that people mount today 
they just can't quite seem to stop you and me buying a new version of the iPhone or whatever it might be. And by the way, sorry, I should, I should, you know, with a nod to Peter Thiel here, say the digital world seems to be an exception to that. You know, we've, we've been allowed mm -hmm. to innovate in, in bits, not atoms, for the last 20 years. Um, so what changed with the Industrial Revolution? Well, um, unlike Deirdre McCloskey, um, uh, uh, Joel Mokir, um, many other people in this area, I don't tend to take the view that it's something cultural. I don't think we started respecting innovators. We started taking science seriously, any of those things. Sure, there might have been some of that, but I'm not convinced it was cause rather than effect. I'm a deeply materialist person on this point, and Deirdre and I have argued about this, and she's not impressed by my view, um, uh, <laughs> that it's about energy. It's that when you harness um, infinite, well, effectively infinite and uh, ever cheaper sources of energy, then you can innovate at a scale that can get one step ahead of the naysayers and the nihilists and the protesters. Um, because energy is so key to everything. Um, uh, you know, once you've got energy flowing into your system, you can do more trial and error, you can have more materials available. And what's happening in the Industrial Revolution is everything is changing. You know, metalwork is changing, and that enables people building steam engines to build better steam engines. And then because the steam engines are changing, uh, you can uh, pump the mines out easier, and that makes coal cheaper, and that makes energy cheaper. And so you get this terrific virtuous circle happening, and all, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats, and the industries cross-feed off each other. There's some very interesting borrowings going on, going on in, in Britain in the 18th century, in Germany in the 19th century, etc., between different industries. Um, so I feel it, it's, a, it's a thermodynamic process, because um, after all, what is uh, technology? Technology, like life, is a reversal of entropy. It's a it's a creation of order. It's a creation of improbability. You know, we we make structures like those books on the shelf behind you, which are highly improbable things. They've got, you know, the words are in the right order mostly, um, and <laughs> uh, you know that that couldn't come about by chance. What do you? The one thing we know about thermodynamics is to make order, to make improbable structures, you need to put energy into the system. And I think in the Industrial Revolution, we just found a way. It was called coal, and I come from the area where the coal was mined, so that might be my um, prejudice here. Um, we found a way to supply more and more energy to the system, and that created unstoppable innovation in all sorts of fields. Um. Okay, I have a response to that, which I'll frame in the form of a question. But first, I have a tangent. Um, I remember when I was a, my father was a uh, a sort of classic Jewish intellectual in exile, and um, one of his favorite pastimes was to say strange things to me on the long walks. <laughs> and I remember, I think my son uh, may well say that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, he. Uh, I, I have a vivid memory of him explaining how the Black Hand in the Balkans was the first modern terrorist organization uh, while pushing me on a swing when I was about six years old. <laughs> but um, he, uh, I once asked him on a Sunday walk to go get locks and bagels um, about whether God existed. And he said, well, think of it this way. Um, a perfectly beautiful, perfectly running stopwatch 
is far more likely to be found on Mars than a single-celled creature. Because the stopwatch is far less complicated than a single-celled creature, never mind a human being. And, um, uh, and so therefore, this idea that this just all happened by happenstance seems unlikely. Now, I know there are responses to all of that, but when you talk about these things that defy entropy and all the rest, it does get my mind going back to all that. Okay, but back to the... Okay, can, I, can I slot um, in a very, very quick tangential point on that? Sure. Which is uh, my friend Rory Sutherland, who's an advertising executive but a big thinker and thinks evolutionarily, made the point the other day. He said, you know, isn't it interesting? The entire world scientific elite are trying to work out how to uh, um, uh, solve the problem of creating immunity to a virus. When you get catch that virus... In most cases, unless you die, within a week, your immune system has solved the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting point. We're going to come to the virus in a, in a little bit. But um, so on your point about innovation, I, I hear what you're saying. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, this, is a, this is a particular problem, which I've talked about a bunch on this podcast, for conservative intellectuals in particular who um, are very, very interested in arguing about ideas. Mm. Um, and the problem is they hold ideas constant over time while failing to take in a, uh, into account. Actually, you'll like this. This is what uh, Whitaker Chambers called the Beaconsfield position uh, after Benjamin Disraeli. And it was this idea that you have to take account for changes in the means of production to understand what is actually going on in a society. And the argument I always make is that, look, you know, the automobile did more to upset settled, stable communities in America than any weird idea that escaped a German lab and made it through France into America. But people like to argue with Nietzsche, and it's very difficult to argue with a Buick, you know, and so they just, they don't address it. And... At the same time, couldn't I mean I, I'm I'm against a lot of either ors in this discussion. I'm a both and guy, mm -hmm. and so the isn't the, re, the 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 possible reconciliation between your position and Deirdre's position that um, the dynamic that you're talking about is real, and maybe it is the prime mover, maybe it's the chicken, not the egg, but at the same time, the cultural response to it is what makes all of these things possible, right? I mean, you start seeing the benefits from coal and there were there were attempts to, you know, cramp, clamp down on that kind of thing. You know, right, there right. were Luddites and whatnot. But something in the culture, whether it was the Protestant Reformation or or the, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the Max Weber kind of take on these things, but there was something in the culture that adapted to this and turned a bug into a feature that allowed it to spread rapidly. Absolutely right. And uh, uh, yeah, you're, yeah, I would completely accept that. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the failed industrial revolutions of previous eras are really interesting in this respect, uh, particularly mm -hmm. the, Chinese, the Chinese one. I mean, if you, if you look at the Song Dynasty, um, you get a, an extraordinary flowering of technology, but also of culture going on. And it looks like it's got, it's reached escape velocity, uh, as it were. 
uh, and then basically along come the the, the, uh, the Mongols and trash the place. But actually, they're not too bad because Kublai Khan gets the point and lets it continue. But then the Ming Dynasty starts, and the Ming Dynasty really does shut everything down. It tells every merchant that he's got to stay within 13 miles of his birthplace. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, you know, ridiculous um, top-down uh, bureaucratic mandarinate. Um, uh, so. Uh, yes, you can certainly kill it with the wrong regime. And Britain was lucky. It was an island. So, it, you know, the, the, Europe was lucky generally because it it's got peninsulas and mountain ranges that and islands that make it very hard to unify, whereas China's much easier right. to unify. That's an argument David Hume made a long time ago, and I think there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, and empires are really bad at innovation, actually. Um, so, yes, uh, and, and also Britain had you know, had a, um, what you might call a hostile takeover by the Dutch a century before the Glorious Revolution, which had given us things like stock market. Best case of regime change in, in world Absolutely. history, as far as I can yeah, tell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and for whatever reason, we also had a free trade area within the country so people could move around. And for whatever reason, there was just enough freedom of thought. There wasn't that much freedom of thought. I mean, you know, look what happened when when um, somebody accused Adam Smith of, of preaching atheism at the University of Glasgow. And uh, 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 you know, some well, uh, one of his colleagues was transported to Australia for heresy or something. You know, I mean, so it it, it wasn't all. You couldn't say what you thought in the eighteenth in eighteenth century Britain as much as we think, but nonetheless, mm. there was just enough um, freedom of thought and freedom of uh, stuff. And you can see, and obviously, you know, America catches. Uh, the best of it, uh, Jefferson and Co. Bring all those uh, ideas. Well, they don't bring; they develop. You know, they they improve all those ideas. Uh, and again, you know, America, the federal structure gives it a, a, a fragmented nature that keeps the, the the flame alive. That doesn't let a an imperial structure develop that would shut it down. Uh, so I think yes, the, the politics. But just back to technological determinism, very briefly. Um, I'd be interested to know what you think about this. I, I take the view that um, the method by which we disseminate ideas, the actual nuts and bolts technology we use, influences how the political discourse happens. So the printing press is terribly important in explaining the Reformation. Um, mm -hmm. Likewise, radio is quite important in explaining the rise of the dictators. It's the perfect tool for demagogues. Uh, and likewise, social media is quite important in explaining the um, uh, filter bubbles, echo chambers, and rise of populism today. Uh, and uh, you know, so it, it's it's it, it, we we invent these technologies thinking that they're neutral, and they they aren't. They have an impact uh, on the way the world works. And in in the book, I say um, I was utopian. I thought once we had. Uh, social media, we would all see each other's point of view, and it would all be kumbaya. Well, as they say in the South, bless your heart. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm with you on that. You know, Marshall McLuhan turned out to be right that the medium is the message in a lot yep. of in a, in, a, in a big way. And I, I think the what was the book um, entertaining ourselves to death uh, had a lot yep. going for it as well. Um, my my basic take on all that is that the problem with social media particularly twitter and facebook is that we are hardwired maybe not hardwired but we are wired um 
to want to live in small groups, right? I mean, you know this stuff much better than I do, and your book is one of the things that explained this to me. Um, but, you know, there's the whole Dunbar's number, you know, they're only, you know, we're only sort of built to understand a pretty small group of people. And the problem with Twitter um, and Facebook and these things is they make us feel like, um, someone 2000 miles away is our neighbor and we get very angry when our neighbors are living wrong and behaving wrong in ways that we don't about, you know, strangers, but no one feels like a stranger anymore. They feel like, you know, and so you have these very bad culture war arguments because somebody in New York thinks somebody is, uh, misbehaving in California as if it affects their mm -hmm. life. Um, this is a point, uh, a big fan of yours, uh, Megan McArdle from the Washington Post. Uh, she asked me if I could get some, you to sign something, which is going to be difficult the way we're doing this by remote. But uh, she said the problem with Twitter is it, it basically takes all the worst aspects of small town life and imposes mm. them on the nation. And I, and I, and I think <laughs> there's a lot of truth to yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I, I love her writing, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, now I, 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 I think the, the, there's a lot to be uh, to be said for that. I, I, I want to. All right, so I, I want to get back to one last question. I mean, we can talk about innovation all day, as far as I'm concerned. But I wanted to get back to one the other question I wanted to ask you a while ago, and you actually kind of gave it gave up the ghost when you said you're a technological determinist. Um, do you? I mean, are, do you think there's a true teleology? I mean, is are because when I hear you talk about how no one person really in, came up, innovated with this idea or invented this thing and that this stuff was in the water, yeah. it, it makes it sound like some of these things were inevitable. And yet at the same time, you're talking about how we're living in an anti-innovation age where we are throwing wet blankets on these things. So which is it? Are they inevitable or, are, or can they be stopped? I think you've put your finger on a real contradiction in my argument. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and, no, no, it's, and, and I'm aware it's there, and I haven't resolved it. Um, uh, and I think my, my, my sort of pathetic answer is they must, th there's an element of inevitability of, predict of determinism about what happens. Once, you're, once you've started a ball rolling, there's an, it's going to go down the hill, not up. Um, but uh, the whole system is far too chaotic for it to be fully deterministic. Otherwise, we would just march slowly on from, uh, you know, ancient Greece to um, the nuclear weapons uh, in, a, in a steady progress, which that clearly doesn't happen. First mm -hmm. of all, it jumps around geographically. You know, there's Greece and then there's Arabia and then there's Italy and at some point there's India and there's China and then there's Western Europe and then there's North America and then there's California, you know, et cetera. And now there's China. So why does the bushfire die out in some places and start up in others? And could it die out everywhere? Um, and actually, in a previous book, I talked about the 12th century when the Arab world turned its back on learning after being very, very open to uh, new ideas and, and culture and technology. Uh, and it started burning books and becoming much more um, uh, fundamentally fundamentalist Islamic. Um, and so did a lot of Western Europe too. So in France, the, the so-called medieval enlightenment got shut down um, by uh, these various sort of um, mullahs of the time, <laughs> as it were. Um, 
and uh and and you know china was uh, having exactly the same phenomenon that the ming emperors were beginning to to crack down well it's a little bit later but still you know so the thought experiment is what if all those um repressions succeed what if we literally shut off um uh learning and knowledge and technology and innovation completely and just freeze everything and actually this thought experiment is beautifully explored in a really spooky new novel by robert harris um called the second sleep um which i mean i've already slightly given away the plot but it's set in the future um uh, and it feels like it's set in the medieval past um now in that case i reckon the italian city-states are crucial to keeping the embers glowing Mm -hmm. uh you know it's florence and genoa and and venice and Milan and Luca, who, who, which really sort of stop us sinking completely into um, ignorance and, and chaos. Um, but I wonder what would happen today. You know, if we, if uh, as a result of pandemics or whatever, America, you know, literally gave up being this open-minded, creative place, and so did Europe, and uh, uh, the Chinese were doing everything and making everything and running everything and then they became even more repressive and no new thoughts were allowed um who would carry the flame i'm pretty sure india would actually i think india is a great bet in the long run um uh, a, a culture based on a form of spontaneous order or spontaneous disorder if it's traffic in delhi um <laughs> uh, and um uh so so i'm fairly sure we could keep keep things going but it's it's surprisingly precarious um this process of innovation it's surprisingly reliant on a relatively small population at any one time uh, in the world uh, to keep it going um and that implies that that's where the indeterminacy is coming from to come back to your point mm-hmm. um that 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 it's uh it 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 it's 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 reliant on the peculiar um circumstances of wherever is is the 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 innovation game is afoot yeah um, that was that was one of the big takeaways i had from uh charles murray's uh book human accomplishment yes you know where you just basically Very good i think point. the phrase he uses is milieus right they're just these weird things that open up where you have some sort of unplanned critical mass of geniuses who ping off of each other in ways that make them make the the them better than they otherwise could be you know and so vienna uh, you know in terms of music at a certain you know for a 20-year period just there's this explosion of stuff because it's sort of like you and you're the gentleman you're talking the author you're talking about you both he thought he got the idea from you, right? I mean, it's like you can you can hear that in music. I'm not a big student Absolutely. of music, but like you hear one thing, oh my gosh, I never thought you could do it that way, and it opens up this set of synapses in your brain that make you go in another way when somebody else hears it, and it's kind of this autocatalytic process. And mm-hmm. um, but I think going back to what you were saying earlier, you know, the, adv- the and the advantages that Europe had. Um, that America has, and that you can also talk about it in terms of the sort of Whiggish explanation of 
of why this stuff started really in England and Holland, um, it's the decentralization that's key, right? It, it's you need, um, you know, sort of like you need all sorts of micro habitats that are fairly immune from the from the centralized power structure to go off on weird ways. And when you get standardization, that's what kills innovation more than anything else. It would seem to me. Yeah, and th this this is where China's an interesting exception, which proves the rule. Um, because when you say to people, uh, well, China's very free at the moment, they say, what do you mean? Of course it's not free. The Communist Party is in charge. And, you know, they shoot you if you do the wrong thing. Well, maybe, they do, I don't know, what they, they arrest you if you do the wrong thing. Um, uh, and yes, that's true at quite a high level. But below that, and you can't, you can find examples of Chinese businessmen talking about this. You know, the great thing about this country is that as long as I don't annoy the com Communist Party, I can do what the hell I like. I can build a building. Right. I don't need to get, you know, the local planners to agree that to think. I don't have to do a wildlife survey before I put up my factory. I don't have to put up with Greenpeace coming along and protesting or whatever it might be, or, or local rules and regs. Um, uh, I don't have to bother about uh, intellectual property, by the way. <laughs> I can right. feel that. <laughs> um, so in that sense, it really is free, uh, and that's why it works. And the big theme of my book, and I only realized this towards the end of writing it, actually, uh, and that's why I put the subtitle in, Why It Flourishes in Freedom, is that innovation is crucially dependent on the freedom to make mistakes, the freedom to do trial and error, the freedom to uh, go off at a tangent, because serendipity is very important here, Um uh, that, that because it's unplanned innovation, and there's a huge myth out there that you can plan it, direct it, you can t tell people what to invent and what not to invent. It doesn't work that way. You just let them out into the playground and see what they come back with. Um, uh, th because of that, it, it really is crucial to have a decentralized system and to have a non-sensorious uh, system in terms of what people are allowed to do. And communist regimes like China can just about get away with that because they confine their censoriousness to one level, and that's politics, if you like. So I mean, it's interesting when you talk about you know being able to make mistakes and uh, work around censoriousness. It just highlights how important a product like ExpressVPN is. So we all know that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? You know that. If you don't, you should. Um, but here's something that you might not know that's actually pretty handy, particularly given the uh, long lockdown. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So the exciting news is like, say you're like looking for something new and you can't find anything on American Netflix, well... Doctor Who is on UK Netflix. Um, there are all sorts of things, you know, that you cannot get. I, I, I've discovered this because my daughter, when she was in Spain, she watched almost an entirely different Netflix than the one we have here. It's, so it's, it's basically an undiscovered country for you to explore. It's so simple to do. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and bada-boom! There you go. See... This is because ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? 
Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away to a really weird, weird place. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there. But the reason you should use ExpressVPN to watch shows is that it's, it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen, wherever you are. So if you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, not dingo for reasons that will remain historically a mystery, if you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So, uh, um, when you're talking about planning innovation, I have a, a very close friend who was a Hollywood, uh, this guy, Rob Long, who was a, a big Hollywood TV, uh, producer and scriptwriter, And he always tells the story about how it may be apocryphal, but he uses it in speeches as sort of a joke. And he says, you know, there was a guy who, uh, when the, I think the, the Japanese took over one of the big movie studios, he gives this. Uh, the head of the studio is briefing his new bosses and he says, so next year, as typical with almost any given year, Holly, we will, our studio will probably produce uh, 10 movies, uh, five will be bombs, three will do okay, and two will be really big hits. And at the end of the talk, the one of the Japanese in the audience says, ask a question. He says, well, if you know that, why don't you just make the two hits? <laughs> you know, on the, you know, there's a lot of that sort That's of thing. Lovely. You know? um, That's lovely. So uh, let's, um, let's, in the time we got left, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you are, you've been writing a bunch of stuff for the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere and on Twitter about COVID. And I've been trying to like minimize pandemic talk on here, but um, just because I think people are being saturated with it, but uh, you're sort of an exception to the rule. And, and I have to get my friend, my dear friend, Ron Bailey, who you know, on here soon, and he's going to cover all of this as well. Um, but uh, you, in the piece you, I think you most recently did um, for the journal, you were, you seemed pretty confident that this was a naturally occurring thing and not from a lab. And, and um, um, why don't you just sort of talk through what you think the actual origins of this? Have you changed your mind with these reports that maybe it did come from a lab? That doesn't mean it's naturally recurring. This is one of the, uh, one of the great failings of the media in all this, is the media thinks, it constantly thinks that um, it came from a lab means created by a lab rather than accidentally mm -hmm. released from a lab. But anyway, why don't you just sort of give us your take about yeah. all of that? Yeah. 
Well, I did a deep dive into the uh, bat literature to un understand uh, this connection between the virus and the horseshoe bats of China. And um, I, I was particularly impressed by a very recently published paper that had just come out showing um, the connection between the particular bat sample where they first identified the virus in bats and the human version of the disease. Um, and this was a bat sample they'd collected in 2013 for the Institute of Virology in Wuhan. Uh, and it's very similar to the virus we're catching today, but not quite similar enough mm -hmm. for that sample to have leaked and be the source of it. It looks like it's about 40 years divergence at normal rates of, of genetic evolution. Okay, so uh, um, the, whatever virus we have got, we caught from a bat that last was in connection with that bat 40 years ago. And that sort of makes sense because the cave they got this bat from was a thousand miles from Wuhan. It was in Yunnan province. Okay. Um, uh, but as far as we know, that's the only sample of SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus we're talking about, from a bat. Um, uh, and therefore, it looks more likely that it was picked up by from a local bat, a bat in Hubei province rather than Yunnan province. But when you say, well, that points the finger at the, at the wet food market, uh, the, the, the wet market, the wildlife market, uh, and the fact that the pangolins were catching it too um, also points a finger there. The, 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 the market certainly, pro no, not certainly, probably played a role um, if only in amplifying the, the, the virus. But you then say, well, were bats for sale on, in that market? We don't know for sure. Bats are for sale in various markets in China, but they tend not to be horseshoe bats. Mm -hmm. okay. It's usually fruit bats, and if it's, if it's not fruit bats, it's not necessarily horseshoe bats. They're, they don't feature on the list of bats that I found which were regularly being served in restaurants throughout southern China. Um, so maybe the bats were hanging around the market and you know their droppings got eaten by some of these stressed animals in the market and that's how it got amplified and we caught it. And that's still probably my default hypothesis. Okay, But I didn't put this in the article because it's still too uncertain yet. There is another plausible story that does involve a lab leak, not a bioweapon, but a lab leak, because there's another lab. It's called the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in, in Hubei province, and it's in Wuhan. It's very close to the, sea, the seafood market, it's, whereas the Institute of Virology is not. It's a lower security level um, lab. It's B, um, BSL level two, not four. Um, and it had a researcher there called Tian Junhua, who was uh, sampling bats in Hubei province for viruses. Uh, he was very open about this. He's published a number of papers about it, and he was one. And there's of... nothing wrong with that. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> there's nothing, nothing wrong with that, and he's taking precaution. We've got film of him. Uh, the, the Chinese, uh, a bit as, a, as a sort of promotional film was made of his work because he's a sort of bit of a adventurer as well as a. You know, he goes into these caves and he wears hazmat suits and it's all quite photogenic, and and he says twice in he had to 
self-isolate for a couple of days because he got contaminated by a bat um scratched or urinated on or something on his bare skin so he um uh so he voluntarily self-isolated this is oh you know this film was made three years ago so we're talking about you know sometime in the last few years now he's working on horseshoe bats among others it's one of his papers talks about sampling 155 horseshoe bats from Hubei province. So these are much closer genetically and geographically to, to, to where we need to look. So uh, it's not impossible that he brought bats to the lab uh, for sampling and that something about their, um, their juices got into the system somehow by accident. Uh, and then got amplified by the seafood market. That feels to me like a um, uh, a plausible hypothesis. And in order to investigate it, it would be very nice if the Chinese authorities would say, here is Tian Junhua. He's going to explain to you exactly everything he's done in the last few years and exactly how his lab protocols were. Um, and you can ask him any questions you want. Uh, and we're going to do everything we can to test for samples all around that lab and the market and everywhere else. And we're going to publish this openly on the on 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 the web. Um, uh, that would be the right thing for a responsible government to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, we're not seeing any signs of that. Yeah. And um, I had a colleague of mine from AI, Lyman Stone, on here a few weeks ago. He's based out of Hong Kong. He's an economist, a sort of a real data guy. And his point, which he convinced me on before it became conventional wisdom, is that the most important thing in a pandemic isn't lockdown orders and quarantines. It is disseminating accurate information widely and clearly. And it sort of ties in with, in many ways with your point, right? So uh, the point of your book, which is that if you get the information out there that there's a serious threat out there, People will, I mean, innovation is probably too grandiose a word, but people will respond with things like social distancing and staying home and being careful out of their own self-interest rather than because some central authority told them to. And so the re, his argument for why China deserves so much of the blame here isn't that it's an escaped bioweapon or any of these kinds of things. It is that they stood in the way of clear, accurate dissemination of knowledge when it could have mattered a great deal. And this is a debate that we have now in the States, which I wanted to ask you about. You're free to respond to any of that too. But uh, um, in the States, there is, by my lights, um, the best way to characterize the debate, uh, to borrow a term from, from social science, is incredibly bad stupid um that uh batch relevant yes i know it's uh but the uh the whole there is this one side that has become very populist very quickly or has had their populism intensified very quickly that makes it sound like all it takes is for the state to lift these stay-at-home orders and we can quote unquote turn the economy back on and it feeds into all sorts of crazy conspiracy theory stuff, uh, depending on how far out on the spectrum you want to go. Um, there is this tendency in the, in the craziness of American politics these days to assume that any inconvenience, hardship, or even just simple disagreement must be, uh, there must be evil motives on the other side of the argument, that if somehow 
our governor is shutting down the economy in Michigan or whatever. It must be because they are secret leftists who want to destroy capitalism. And it can't be that you're just trying to save lives and maybe doing too much. Are you seeing that kind of politics much in the UK with all of this? How is it just playing out on the ground over there? In many ways, very similar. Um, uh, we, uh, we're having a huge uh, sort of blame game already about whether we were too slow to lock down in the first place and whether we are too slow to unlock now. Mm. Uh, the same people are sometimes making <laughs> the same argument, actually, <laughs> and not necessarily inconsistently. We have that with Trump, where he is both in favor of the lockdown and against it. I right. mean, it's, exactly. it's very confusing. But anyway, I'm sorry, go on. And, and we have the slightly confusing complication that the prime minister is out of action. Right. Um, and he was very, very ill. And uh, he, uh, we keep expecting him to reappear. He's, did, he's done one video message and that's it. And he is... He's not like Trump. In, he's a very different man from Trump in many ways. He's a very sort of gentle, friendly person, which is not quite the right word to use for Donald Trump. Um, uh, but he is uh, similarly iconic, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you like. Um, uh, and so that that matters. Um, uh, the, the, um, the, the thing that has spooked me is the degree to which the public seems to be almost enjoying the lockdown. Now, that's that's the wrong thing to say because a lot of people are not enjoying it. But there's a there's an element of snitching on your neighbours. He went for two walks. Mm -hmm. And the police, in some cases, have been ridiculous in this country, uh, going up to people sunbathing in a park all on their own and saying, go home, you should either be exercising or you should um, be at home. Um uh, and actually, sunlight is a great disinfectant for viruses. We know right. that. Um, and we're having great weather over here at the moment, ironically. Um, I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who, who was out riding a horse along a, a road. And um, along came a cyclist and shouted at him, you shouldn't be riding your horse. <laughs> what? You're riding your bicycle. <laughs> you know, the, the, what, what's going on there? The, hang on, that person might be enjoying themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what's yeah. going on i think yeah yeah so i think i think the you know there's a nasty streak of uh, fascism's the wrong word but um authority enjoyment uh, yeah that we're all a bit spooked by at the moment on the on puritanical spirit finds this a happy medium here yeah. right yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i shouldn't have said people are enjoying this the lockdown that's not what i meant um but uh, if you see what i mean because yeah uh, you know, it, it is brutal for a lot of people. But at the same time, we're also, of course, paying the wages of people who can't get to work. And so that is sort of enabling people to say, well, I'm in no hurry to unlock. Um, and that could be disastrous. I mean, we are seeing so many businesses that, that uh, the, way, the way I think of it is we've, 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 we're throttling the economy. We, we've, we've put we've got our hands on the windpipe of the economy now if if i were to throttle you for 30 seconds you'd be fine when i took my hands away i hope um whereas if i did it for three minutes right it wouldn't be the same uh, so i think the length of these lockdowns is incredibly important uh, i think but businesses can bounce back now but another couple of weeks and i'm not sure they could yeah uh, and that i feel is the sort of crucial 
debate at the moment. And also we're slightly forgetting what the lockdown was for. The point that we were told the lockdown was in order to not overwhelm the health system, to flatten the curve, uh, as it were. But the health system is now gearing up big time. We've built these uh, temporary hospitals. We've got far more ventilators. Although it turns out ventilators aren't much help for people who are dying of this. But um, uh, so the, the, if it was to give us time um, to uh, to increase the capacity of the health system, we've done that. And so we should now then gradually unlock and we should unlock the th we, we we ought to be able to work out which of the lockdown things matter most i mean it looks like locking down schools doesn't help that much but uh preventing football matches or boxing matches with forty thousand people watching is quite important mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and should should continue for probably a year or so unless we get a vaccine um, so that's where we need to be having this conversation. And yes, it's it, it's it's at times getting as nasty over here as it is over there, although perhaps without quite the uh, party political uh, viciousness, partly because we just had an election. So we kind of got right. that out of our system in, in December. We resolved Brexit, which was our big um, uh, polarization um, at the end of January. Uh, and although there's a lot of people very bitter about the way it was resolved, and that does map onto which side of this debate you're on to some degree, um, uh, it perhaps doesn't map quite as neatly. You're in an election year. You're coming up to uh, Donald Trump's re-election re campaign, etc. And so um, I think it was inevitable that it would get tangled up in, in politics to the degree it has. But you would know more than I do. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 less. I mean, politics obviously is a big part of it, um, but it's it's stranger than that. Yeah, it you know it's. I agree it's, with that. Um, and I was going to ask you how it maps with Brexit because I was sort of interested in that. But the, you know, we're we're already seeing the red state blue state divide express itself in in which governors are for opening things up and which ones aren't. But the very the the weirdest part about it is that. It really is like so much of our politics now has less to do with Republican versus Democrat and pro-Trump versus anti-Trump. And the people who are bought into uh, the cult of Trump, as it were, um, also un inconveniently for Trump are the people who are most against the lockdown. Yeah. And so you get this very strange, it's sort of like if only the czar knew, you know, kind of thing where... Uh, they want to simultaneously say that Trump is handling this fantastically, but that Anthony Fauci needs to be fired and that he's to blame for all of this for misleading the president. And they can't quite reconcile the fact that Anthony Fauci or, or Dr. Burks or whoever, that these advisors actually have no power. Right. And anything that the federal government is doing is at the behest of the president of the United States, but he has to be held blameless. And so it creates this really poisonous impulses towards scapegoatism and conspiracy theory. And um, and they don't make rational sense. They just make intuitive sense, given where we are in our politics, I, is the only way to sort of explain it. Yeah. Well, I think our equivalent of that difficult argument is the question of, um, the National Health Service versus the politicians, because uh, we have a National Health Service which is revered, even though it's a pretty inefficient health system compared with others around the world. But 
not allowed to say that. And we have to go out every Thursday night, ooh, it's tonight, at uh, 8 o'clock and clap on the street. And if you don't, and I know somebody who doesn't, um, uh, you get shouted uh-huh. at. Um, and that's a bit yeah. weird. And then at the same time, we've got it. the Public Health England, which is the, the body that's supposed to have been preparing for pandemics and things like that and is a government body and is responsible for the diagnostic testing and uh, the protective equipment and all that has done a really, really terrible job of being over-centralized, slow, bureaucratic, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone knows that and agrees with that. But they don't blame Public Health England. They blame the politicians for not telling Public Health England to do it. And the politicians are at fault here because they said, it's our NHS and I am going to be responsible for it in an election campaign only three months ago. Um, So, uh, you know, the, the weird thing is the politicians are getting the responsibility without having the power to enact something because they've put the bureaucracy at arm's length in administrative terms, but not at political yeah. in political That's terms. Um, um, okay, so unfortunately, uh, Matt has to go. Uh, I have had this, I, this. I'm not making this up. There are ever since you invited Ron Bailey, who's one of my oldest friends, uh, to come visit you once. Uh, I have said uh, of of living people within reason uh, that I would love to have uh, a drink or 12 with uh that you were on my list and um so this has been great i wish we could have done it in person i wish we could have done it over a pint or a bottle of scotch we will we will um when this is all over you will we will have drinks meals you'll come and visit all of that i would i would really that would be fantastic um so thank you so much for coming on and um uh Happy to have you on again. And if you ever just have this, uh, the urge to come on, just shoot me an email and we'll set it up. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks, Jonah. It's been really enjoyable. And can I just say one thing? Do you know what the first person to send me your book, Liberal Fascism, was? Uh oh. Was my, he's not necessarily an ideological bedfellow, uh, James Watson, the DNA pioneer. Really? Yeah. He said, this is, this is a very important book. You should read it. Um, <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. I mean, it's it's a little so shocking. Just, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's, he he comes out with some pretty weird pronouncements, as you know. Yeah, uh, in, uh, has done in his old age, but but in his in his heyday, he was a great brain. Well, there's there are, there are a handful of people who I, I collect because you know it's, it's still a fairly reviled and vilified book here in the states. And uh, I, if I had to write it over a different way today, I probably would, though not the stuff that is most reviled. Um, but. Uh, Tom Wolfe was a huge fan of it, and um, wow, that's great. So was David Mamet, and so uh, I'm collecting these kinds of stories. So thank you very much. Anyway, Matt, thank you so much for coming on, and we will see you again. Thank you again. Okay, so Matt had to go. Um, It kind of bums me out because I could talk to him for a very long time. Uh, As I was saying, we have mutual friends, and I knew he was going to be fun to talk to. But that's the first time I ever talked to him. And I think people know by now that I don't normally really gush over people. There are lots of people I've had on here who I respect a great deal. But um, as the, uh, as I believe the youth say, I, I'm, I'm a real Matt Ridley stan. Um, and I feel like I should take a shower just having said that. But uh, I really look forward to having him back on and um, hopefully someday getting together with him. And um, I hope people get a chance to actually listen to the the first podcast of the week with, with Vin Canato. Um, because I think there's 
something useful. First of all, I, I love talking to Vin and I thought it was a really interesting conversation. But also, I just think there's something really, really useful in um, hearing that academia is not exactly the caricature that a lot of people think it is. There are, you know, I mean, there are conservatives out there. Um, Vin would be the first one to admit that they're not exactly a majority, but it's a more complicated world actually on the campus than the caricatures we often get from a lot of right-wing media. And I just thought, anyway, I thought it was a really interesting conversation and I want to do more stuff with Vin. So people should check it out. And I know one of the weird counterintuitive things of the lockdown is people are actually listening to podcasts less. I think in part because podcasting is not, podcast listenership is so, uh, you know, sort of commute dependent and gym dependent and that kind of thing. And when you're home with your whole family, um, it's harder to do and your normal schedule's messed up and you're watching a lot more TV and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, we've had a really great backlog of um, podcasts that we've done. Some of the, I think, you know, I, I personally like doing podcasts in person with people so you can read the reactions. But I think some of the most interesting podcasts that we've ever had on The Remnant have been during the lockdown. Um, so if you're not, you know, as great as ExpressVPN is, and by all means, stream as much video as you want. But, uh, you know, a lot of these things are, a lot of the podcasts we've done are pretty uh, long lasting and, and, and uh, you know, have a long shelf life. And so you should check them out. And, but if you need to stream, if you need to watch something, then I've got some exciting new for you, news for you. The last episode, the last live happy hour glop podcast, which was such a screaming success that uh, we are doing another one. As I've said before, it was the first um, podcast I've done that actually left me with a hangover. Um, and I'm going to be a little more uh, careful this time, I think, but maybe not. Who knows? Uh, since my family is around, I, I got to be a little more circumspect, but, uh, so John Podoritz, Rob Long and I on, uh, are doing a live zoom glop culture podcast this Sunday, April 26, 6 PM Eastern. Um, you can sign up, you can, you can sign up if you're a dispatch member, only people who are dispatch members or subscribers to commentary or members of Ricochet can get in, but seating, quote unquote, is limited. Uh, the Zoom software we're using, I think, maxes out at a thousand, and we hit that last time. Uh, but so, if you want to sign up, you should do so. Uh, you can go to thedispatch.com/dingo. That's thedispatch.com/dingo, and there's still time to become a paying member of of the dispatch community if you want and be able to check this thing out. All you got to do is go to the dispatch.com slash dingo. And frankly, even if you don't want to watch the glop thing, uh, there will be a video link later if you can't watch it live, by the way. But even if you don't want to watch the glop thing, if you could come, you know, uh, if you can swing being a member, uh, it would mean the world to us. Uh, we are persevering through this whole thing. Um, we are not laying off anybody. We are not looking for charity. We think we're providing something really important and what we're doing is really important. And, uh, we think the community that we're building is great. And, uh, you know, the comments, some of them go a little off the rails, but for the most part, it's the first comments I regularly read in years. 
Um, and it's because people sort of get that they need to be civil and thoughtful, even if they disagree. Um, and we appreciate that. And they're going to be a lot more members only. And I don't mean the jacket, uh, uh, events and opportunities going forward and it'd be great if if remnant listeners could uh, uh, be part of all of that so with that um, I didn't get Matt because he had to go and I didn't want to waste time explaining it to him so I didn't get him to say no you won't this is a podcast so uh, maybe we'll go back to our greatest hits and have uh, uh, a replay of the Latin one because I thought that was pretty awesome so uh, I'll see you next time Non me wideris podcastum est. Anything crazy stupid in that?